introduce the speakers today. Um, first is Teresa Hyuna Huang, who is one, a dear friend of mine, and is also an amazing community-engaged architect and facilitator who will be moderating the conversation today. <laughs> and then... <laughs> And then Molly Reisman, who is the Director of Policy and Planning for Housing for Health within the Los Angeles County Department of Health Services. And Sissy Trin, the Executive Director of SICA, Southeast Asian Community Alliance, who, you know, each in their respective positions will be contending with issues like how housing, how housing, housing <laughs> is not just an object, but a community and home and all of their various practices from, again, their respective positions. And this conversation will be followed by a Q&A. So please give them a warm welcome and I'll just let them take over. Thanks. Good afternoon. Thankful to be gathered all together in this beautiful public space. Thank you, Clock Shop, for always hosting wonderful conversations. And just what an honor to be with you all and, and to sit together to really engage in conversation. Hopefully, uh, uh, towards the end, during the question and discussion part, we can get more voices into the conversation. Um, Pat did a very brief sort of intro. The the dry, I say the dry bios of, of who folks are, uh, but it would be fantastic for everyone to just give a chance to do a little bit more of an in-depth grounding of where you're coming from, the lens with which you're going to be speaking from, and to also just uh, uh, root where um, you are in, in context of the place that we're sitting today. So, Sissy? Um, Sissy Trin, Executive Director of SICA, the Southeast Asian Community Alliance. We do youth organizing around equitable development, affordable housing, and just how do, how do we make our neighborhood and our city more racially just, socially just, and then economically accessible and just, right? So we work in Chinatown. Our office is just around the corner over there, actually. Um, and we started doing land use work and affordable housing and equitable development work about mm, 12, 13 years ago, mostly because I got lobbied by a bunch of 16-year-olds. Um, there was a campaign that the, you know, the city was looking to reimagine this neighborhood. Um, and Mind you, Chinatown is basically the oldest neighborhood in LA, right? So you have like the Zanha Madre that cuts through here, and um, it has been reimagined many, many times over the years by many different people of, you know, what the future could be. But it never actually took into consideration what is already here, right? And so city was kind of imagining a new, like, you know, transit-oriented development plan, and our students basically came up to me and was like, Sissy, we need to stop this. Like, where's Chinatown in this plan? You know, they talk about the future, but they don't have a place for us and our families. You know, and you're spending all this Sika's time and money and resources trying to get us into college, but if this plan passes the way it is, we're not going to have homes to come back to. And so it's, that started our long and very challenging journey learning about things like inclusionary zoning. Um, so hi everybody, Molly Reisman, my pronouns are she, her, um, and I, as was said, I'm the Director of Policy and Planning for the County Department of Health Services, which started a division called Housing for Health. Um, what happened is about 10 years ago, there were so many um, patients experiencing homelessness showing up in the county hospitals, um, and the county could give them like the most expensive fantastic medical care in the world, and it did not matter because 
because if you try and um, help somebody get healthy and then discharge them to the streets, they're going to get even more unhealthy. Um, and there was an amazing doctor, Dr. Mitch Katz, running DHS at the time, um, and he said the most important prescription for the health system to give is the prescription for housing. Um, and so he launched Housing for Health 10 years ago um, to push the county and Housing for Health to provide housing for people experiencing homelessness um, and started with a really radical idea of the county paying for its own um, rental subsidy. LA is one of the few places in the country that has a locally funded rent subsidy. Um, most rent subsidies are things like Section 8, which are federal, um, but we actually fund a county rental subsidy. And that grew to a very um, elaborate continuum over time. Housing for Health has just gotten bigger and bigger as we thought about what are the services we're providing in conjunction with that rental subsidy, and how do we have interim housing for people, particularly people with complex um, medical conditions and behavioral health conditions to support them and the outreach teams we need and the mobile clinics and the benefits advocacy. Um, so it has grown to a, a larger um, entity. Um, and I think now is when I'm supposed to do some of the framing. So I'll just say, I mean, I think I come at this um, with a, a little bit of a unique lens. My career started with an arrest. Um, so I left home at 15, got into lots of trouble. Um, and some of that trouble was arrests. And one of those arrests um, led when I was 16 to being sentenced to community service, um, which I did at a local nonprofit in Portland, Maine, where I grew up. And the executive director of that nonprofit was like, wow, for a 16-year-old, like, you seem pretty responsible. Like, most of the kids sentenced to community service did not show up on time and, like, do what they needed to do. And when she found out I didn't live with my family, she said, well, why don't you, um, would you be interested in helping us? We have a really big problem with homeless teenagers um, showing up in, at that time, they called them soup kitchens. It was the early 90s. Um, and we don't know what to do with these homeless kids who we really don't want around like the older chronic alcoholic um, guys who were using the soup kitchen. Um, so I started volunteering on an advisory board, which led to the opening of a day center for kids experiencing homelessness. Um, and they hired me as a peer advocate. Um, so I, I really sort of like this career sort of plucked me um, out of what a, a life that was pretty chaotic um, and did social work for a long time. Um, and then felt like I really wanted to work on the policy side and went back to school and found urban planning and got a graduate degree in urban planning. Um, so I've, I've sort of come at this in different ways. And the last thing I'll just say, um, I'm very grateful that I'm an urban planner and not a social worker because um, I don't have to care about boundaries. Um, and that <laughs> has been really important in terms of the work I do with communities, um, which are really, for me, the most important thing in my career has been building really authentic relationships. Um, and so I love that I can invite people to dinner at my house that I'm trying to work in partnership with, which you're not supposed to do as a social worker. Um, but I'm not a social worker, so I can do it. Um, so building these really um, deep, authentic relationships has been a big theme throughout my career um, and a lot of the lens I take to doing the work I do. Um, and my name is Teresa Hyanna Huang. I use she, her pronouns, and I'm sort of moderating, but also I think rounding out the conversation. Um, it's great that Sissy is bringing the organizer point of view, really thinking about direct mobilization with communities, um, 
making sure the power of the people are represented in policy and Molly's bringing the advocacy policy side. So I love that we have like the immediate micro on the ground point of view along with the macro sort of larger um, regional view. And then I sit somewhere in between. Um, as an architect and a designer, um, I, I feel like a lot of what I do is uh, assembly synthesis um, and also not choosing uh, a scale to work at and trying to jump between it all. And so I've had a chance to actually work with um, both of these amazing people. Uh, since Sissy and the work she did, um, I saw Sissy and Remy de la Peza present on the Arroyo Seco plan, I don't know, 15 years ago. And I got to witness uh, the people's influence on planning policy. And so during the time that I was working in Skid Row, where I worked with Molly um, at a nonprofit affordable housing, um, uh, organization, we tried to create a neighborhood-based plan centering uh, the experience of people who have been unhoused. And so a lot of the work that Sissy has done has been a great inspiration. Um, and so a lot of the work I do is about how do the people in place um, design the, the, the communities that we live in. And so I, I really think about design, architecture, urban planning as cultural infrastructure. How is it reflecting identity, our ways of being, our ways of knowing in a permanent uh, infrastructural sort of way. And so I think today's conversation, really thinking about the land and then also the structures on top of it, um, you know, we're talking about physical housing, but also we know all of the invisible systems at play. There are um, systems of power, systems of harm, sisters, systems of injustice, but then there's also systems of uh, liberatory visions that are trying to really shift where we've been and place us in, in spaces where, you know, we are thriving. You know, well-being is centered. Um, communities are seen, are resourced. Um, and hopefully that is where we can um, have an honest conversation about that. And so where are we sitting? What is our community? Um, I think Sissy is going to help really ground us with the, the people, uh, the places, and then existing efforts at hand. Um, so this is Chinatown, also unceded Tongva you know, lands. Um, and it's the oldest part of the city, right? Um, it is also... I think important to note that a lot of Asian American immigrants, like when the city was founded, were used as low wage labor, right? Um, and so what that meant was, for me, urban planning, when I started my work in urban planning, I didn't know what it was, to be quite honest. And we were like Googling, like, how do you get affordable housing? What is urban planning? And now I think about it because I've like done a deep dive. Um, a lot of urban planning can be used as tools for like, Teresa said liberation, but historically they've been used as tools for racial segregation and over-policing. So if you think about which neighborhoods are ghettos, right, what resources are put in these neighborhoods and what resources are not put in these neighborhoods, right? Um, it is a function of urban planning. Like the choices where we make, where we put freeways and factories, um, Chinatown not only is the oldest neighborhood, we are also the most polluted neighborhood in LA, right? We are the most environmentally vulnerable across the entire state, right? If you look at all the different metrics. Um, we have factories right across the street, right by you know an elementary school, right? Ann Street Elementary over by William Meade. Our oldest public housing project is two blocks away, and our regional prison system is here, you know? 
So Chinatown was created as a containment zone, similar to Skid Row, actually, right, where Asian American immigrants weren't allowed to live, work, or go to school or play anywhere outside of these neighborhoods, right? And that's why you build these kinds of um, infrastructures because the undesirables live here. So like, what do we care if we have factories, right? Um, but I think a lot of the community, a lot of our communities, right, low-income communities, communities of color, we know that the public sector is not gonna give us what we need. And so how do we come together to create the infrastructure ourselves that is missing, right? And so even though Chinatown is probably the second or third poorest neighborhood in the city, um, we have a lot of banks. You know, we have a lot of like medical providers. You know, oftentimes when you think about low-income communities, you're always like, it's a food desert, it's this, it's that. And I think a lot of it was simply because as an immigrant, as a refugee community, you really had a lot of people who were just like, well, we know that Vons is never gonna come here and Bank of America is never gonna come here. So we're just gonna like, you know, me and my friends and my neighbors are gonna create a little lending circle. And that lending circle over generations eventually became like East West Bank, right? Um, a lot of it was about just like, they're not gonna do what they should, we are owed and we can't wait around for that. So we can create our own infrastructure. And that's kind of why you know, you have a lot of assets in Chinatown that a lot of people don't think about. But at the same time, you know, um, it's still really poor, right? And so we work with high school students whose parents work in the underground economy. So they work um, in sweatshops, in restaurants, they get paid under the table. You know, I remember one time in my office, we had students who were debating, like, what is middle class? And they were like, $25,000 for a family is middle class. Right, because a lot of our families are making thirteen thousand a year, and we actually have a lot of seniors who are on the verge of homelessness. You know, they're basically eighty years old. They're too old to work. They're disabled, and they're on SSI. And SSI pays a maximum of nine hundred and fourteen dollars a month. So we have, we've paid rent. So you know, during the pandemic, we became a pandemic relief organization. That's a longer story um, that you can ask me afterwards. <laughs> um, but we started doing emergency rental assistance for our, our tenants. And I remember writing a check for a tenant at William Mead Public Housing for $198. Um, so yeah, $4 a month does make a difference, right? Um, and then, you know, these are the, our fastest growing segment of homelessness is low-income seniors, right? People who can't work and rent goes up or, you know, the landlord decides, like, I can make more money renting to, like, Google interns, so I'm going to evict all the seniors in this building and then turn it into a micro loft. So I think that's just kind of the context that I'm operating in, but also recognizing there's like an amazing history here. So many people who, like when I walk down the street, sometimes I feel like it's a small village in Chinatown because I will just run into like students who I haven't seen in five years, cousins, parents, you know. You know, the, the, the business owners will be like, oh, hey, sis, you know, like it feels very small town, at least to me, because I'm, you know, we're constantly canvassing and organizing and, and doing outreach. But like we run into people all the time and people will look out for each other in a way here that um, you wouldn't expect in a city the size of L.A.
You want me to put a little context about homelessness? I was just going to say, well, just to start, um, I mean, it's fascinating. So Housing for Health very intentionally has our offices based in Skid Row. And Teresa and I worked in Skid Row um, many years ago. And so I spent a lot of time in Skid Row. Um, And Skid Row similarly feels very much um, like a neighborhood, um, like a small town. People, you see people you know constantly, people greet each other. People are incredibly friendly. They say, hello, how are you doing? Looking beautiful today. I was doing the homeless count and we were joking that like, you really feel like you got game when you walk down the streets of Skid Row because people are really nice and they give you all these compliments, it's great. Um, uh, And I do think that this piece of some of our poorest communities in the city um, yes, having poverty and all of the, ch- obviously there's lots of challenges in Skid Row, but really intense community, like this amazing strength and superpower um, of a community that has a strong sense of self, um, where people are deeply connected. Um, not, not everybody is just like immediately going into where they live. Like people spend a lot of time on the street and so they run into each other, they build relationships. It just has a very different feel and is this, um, Um, extraordinary asset. Um, And just to provide a little context around homelessness, I've worked on homelessness a long time now, Um, things started to feel very different in LA in 2014. And I don't think like it sort of caught on in popular consciousness right away in 2014. Um, But we started to actually have a much more efficient homeless system. We started to do more targeting. Um, uh, it, It had been a very diffused system and a lot of things were starting to be centralized in 2014, 2015. And we were getting much more efficient and the streets felt terrible. Um, And we could tell something was going on because we were getting more people into housing, um, but more people were unsheltered. Um, And and came to realize that what was happening is that there were a lot more people being priced out of their homes. And that's what's really changed in Los Angeles. Like some people are like, does LA have more mental illness than other parts of the country? No. Does LA have more substance abuse than other parts of the country? We probably have less. Um, You know, the real intensity, um, you know, places that have, been, that have been hit by the opioid crisis actually have much higher rates of substance use disorder than here in Los Angeles. What has happened in Los Angeles is the rent is too damn high. Like, and everybody knows it. Like, everybody feels it. Everybody has, if you're not a renter yourself, you have family members or friends who are renters and are feeling this incredible crunch. Um, and so that is the primary thing that's changed in Los Angeles is there's so many people that can't afford rent now. And it is just people are being churned into the streets constantly. Um, Like Sissy was saying, low-income seniors are the fastest-growing population um, of people experiencing homelessness. Um, It's an extraordinary phenomenon, and it's really, it is quite challenging working in homelessness because people are like, well, we passed these tax measures. Like, shouldn't we see less homelessness? And the reality is there's a lot more people who are getting housing because of the tax measures, um, Triple H and Measure H that were passed, but they can't keep up because we've done nothing to stem the rent issue. And so even though more and more people are getting help and getting housing assistance, it's not enough to keep up with how much rents are going up and how many people are falling into homelessness every day. Um, You you know, you're both emphasizing really what everything looks like, what the current landscape is, which I think is important. we know that poverty is designed, right? It is intentional. And I think with both Chinatown and with Skid Row, we're talking millions, if not billions of dollars are actually flowing through these communities. You know, whether it's through uh, grants, um, 
you know, consumer interactions, uh, housing subsidies, but there is so much money flowing through these neighborhoods, but it is actually not being retained by the resident tenant communities. And so there is very little um, opportunity for um, sustained just well-being. And I think that's also really important, the fact that the, the capital just gets washed away. And so there are some issues as it relates to some of the, the policy, policies in place because, you know, the, the poverty is, is um, just really resilient in a, in, in a strange way because regardless of all these measures of resistance and organizing, it's, it's a slow shift. And, you know, so we're talking today really through the lens of, of housing. And housing is a giant industry in itself, right? We're, um, I don't even know where to begin, but uh, we're gonna be using some terms and I do think it's helpful for us to define some of them so we're all, uh, we have a shared language around the way that we're describing things. You know, affordable housing, low-income housing, supportive housing, public housing, to someone who is not um, as, as as deeply entrenched in some of this can all sound the same, but they're actually all different. Uh, some of the funding, but also the management is different. So I, I also want to take a moment to just also define some shared terms so that we will have the same conversation at once. Well, and if I can just, do you mind if I just take one thing to say, we take a particularly conservative approach to how we address issues of land and housing in this country because of our history, um, because of the legacy of gentrification and land dispossession um, and slavery in this country, we have a uniquely conservative approach that is not like most of the Western world. Um, we are quite, again, I mean, part of the reason poverty is so resilient um, is because we're so against actually helping people, um, because there is, I mean, land in this country is about profit. Um, and it is not like that everywhere. There are other parts of the world that really see land as a communal asset. And not that you can't have public or have private property and have profit associated with it, but fundamentally a city is for the people who live there. We do not think that a city is for the people who live here in this country. Um, the real estate that is in in our country, we really think of, of how do you, it, 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 was, it is infringing on people's rights if we limit the maximum amount of profit they can extract from that proper, property. Um, and that is part of the reason there's been profound hostility to things like public housing. So just to talk a little bit about public housing, which is one of the first sort of housing interventions in this country that was really modeled on a lot of the work um, that's now referred to as social housing in Europe, and, and which is great. Um, we love social housing, would love to have some of it here, but we actually did have social housing here, and it was public housing. Um, so starting in the 30s, there was a real push to address slum conditions um, in urban environments by building public housing. And public housing is quite different from other forms of housing. It is land owned by the government, which is different. Um, and it is public housing was actually constructed by the government. Um, and then public housing, unlike a lot of other forms of housing, um, is designed so you only pay 30% of your income in rent. Um, it's not uh, like affordable housing has rents set on area median income for the entire city. It's not based on you individually. So public housing is one of the most accessible forms of housing because it is so much more, it's actually much more affordable than what 
we refer to as affordable housing. And then, of course... And then, Molly, can I interrupt really quick? So in Chinatown, part of the reason we got involved in affordable housing work was simply because we realized traditional nonprofit affordable housing, our folks are too poor to qualify, which sounds really counterintuitive. I'm just like, isn't it supposed to be for poor people? And I'm like, no, because developers need to make a certain amount of revenue to pay for, you know, building maintenance, right? And I get that. But public housing is affordable to anybody who needs it, right? And so that's why we're having this conversation around public housing, right? And a lot of what Molly's saying. So that senior that I paid 100, or Sika paid $198 in rent for, they would never live in an affordable housing complex. They would just make too little to even be able to apply, right? But they live in public housing because public housing accepts those kinds of tenants. And just to also clarify there, um, privately developed, like nonprofit developed, um, very low income housing typically is called supportive housing and usually need to have, um, uh, there's a whole definition of what a vulnerable community is. Usually it is for people with disability um, and have experienced a homelessness. So if you are a senior, you may not qualify for supportive housing. So there are all these like requirements and I don't know if you've ever even just tried to figure out how to vote. You know what I mean? It's it's so complicated. And so to get yeah. through sort of the housing machine to even qualify and comply to get in is so complicated. Well, that's our conservative yeah. approach. Like the way that conservative approach manifests itself is if you apply for Section 8, it's a 50-page application 50 pages. It's insane. Um, And if you're applying for like supportive housing, you have to complete your Section 8 application plus an application to the developer where they might do a credit check, a background check. Like, I mean, it's crazy. You've got somebody who's living on the streets. They desperately need to get inside. It takes months to get into housing because of how crazy the screening is because of this conservative approach. And and just to bring it back to the art, I mean, I love this piece underpinning um, because we were talking today how it really looks like ruins. Um, So underpinning is the floor plan um, of the public housing unit that Rodrigo grew up in. And this idea of sort of like public housing becoming a ruin is what's happened in this country because of the disinvestment in public housing, because we had such profound hostility to providing housing for people who were low income, the federal government disinvested um, and allowed the buildings to fall into extraordinary disrepair, which made them really unhealthy places for people to live. So people talk about the projects being awful. The projects are a hard place to live because of the disinvestment. It's not because there's something wrong with the people or the communities or the housing, it's that we disinvested and let them fall apart. And when you let housing fall apart, crime occurs and all these other things occur. But but what happens is there's this counter narrative where it's like, no, the idea of providing housing for people who are poor is bad, because look what happened. You know, all this crime happened, so you shouldn't provide housing for people who are poor because you're creating a ghetto and you're concentrating poverty and you're this and you're that. Well, it's like, yeah, if you let the buildings completely fall apart, they will be unhealthy places for people to live and unhealthy behaviors will occur. But even within that, there's extraordinary stories of community and resilience that happen even in the profoundly dis- in these, 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 these housing units with extraordinary deferred maintenance and disrepair. 
So, I mean, I think all of us are familiar with kind of the public narrative, the popular narrative around public housing being dystopian. There's gun violence. There's all this other stuff, right? Um, we do a lot of organizing and canvassing in this community. And so we've done a lot of canvassing over at William Mead, which is two blocks away. And you know how dystopian it is? When we were looking for people to help them, like, you know, we were doing the get out the vote stuff. One of the neighbors saw us, like, knocking on someone's door, and he was like, who are you looking for? And then we were like, oh, such a, you know, like Teresa. And she's like, oh, she went out to the grocery store. She'll be about in like, you know, half an hour. Like how scary, right? Like people being neighborly. And it was just over and over again. Every experience we had going to William Mead was literally everybody ch keeping an eye out for each other, right? And watching over their neighbors. There was just this profound sense of community that you could just feel immediately, right? And so that to me is the dystopia of public housing, right? If we provide them with adequate resources, decent amount of like main, well-maintained property, it's about underinvestment. It's not about like poor people are intrinsically evil, right? Or like crime ridden or something like that. They commit crimes because they need to feed their families. They don't commit crimes because it's in their nature. I also think we, we, we need to also be explicit, you know, the disinvestment in public housing also mirrors the disinvestment in communities of color, right? So these buildings are filled with black and brown families. Um, it mirrors a lot of racist policy in the United States. And so it's not just like, oh, housing authorities became so overwhelmed we couldn't take care of it. It, it, it follows a lot of the lines of where capital is flowing. And, and, you know, a lot of these like European social housing places are well maintained because let's, you know, their budgets are not as racist as it is in the yeah. U.S. And so I, I think it's also important to... They're also a lot whiter countries. Yeah, they're <laughs> homogeneous <laughs> Exactly, countries. exactly. Yeah. And so I think we need to talk about the disinvestment is because of you know the uh, the devaluing of the the residents that are living there, and that is all intentional. And so, anyway, let's and continue. and we also have like this whole narrative around you're poor because you make bad choices or because you refuse <laughs> to do things, right? Like you need to get an education, you need to do these things. And but for me, I'm like we will always have poverty in this country as long as we're willing to pay janitors, health home health care aides, and like restaurant workers below minimum wage or shitty wages. We will always, you know, like you can't social service your way out of poverty if fundamentally the majority of the people who keep the city going are getting poverty wages, right? And for me, it's like, why is an employer who's engaging in wage theft a hero because he's economically contributing to the city as opposed to that low-income worker who's basically subsidizing, you know, our cheap food? So I think, Sorry. no, it's, so I, I, I think it's important for us to like ground our conversation in the real, just um, deeply entrenched sense of, um, I don't know, just how deeply rooted housing is in a system of injustice, right? It, it, this is how everything is by design. This is how it's, it's supposed to be. Poor people are supposed to stay poor. Their job, you know, low low wages are supposed to stay low, right? There is just in, intrinsically a, a, a devaluing of, of certain laborers, um, especially in the context of the U.S. And so we do not want to just, this is a system we are trying to dismantle, right? We are all here because uh, we believe that there are systems of care that can replace um, 
you know, bulldoze existing what is in place. And so sort of shifting away from uh, where we're at to the efforts on the ground of where we can go, I think it is also helpful to talk about what are efforts in place to push more, more, more just housing opportunities? You know, what, do, what actually is equitable development? Um, how do we make sure that, you know, our, our communities are not constantly in threat? Like living like this, being like, oh my gosh, are they gonna raise my rent? And am I, you know, everyone is so close to being housing and insecure. And so what are, what are some of the, the ways that things are trying to shift and what are some of the directions that we can go in? Well, and I will say it, it is challenging. I mean, just to make it a little more personal, like I've had a lot of friends who left working in homeless services because there is so much like white supremacy and white saviorism like built into these systems that are very sort of focused on like telling people we know what's right for you and just just go into a shelter and everything will be fine. Well, it's you know, even in the best of shelters where we're providing what they now call non-congregate housing, where somebody has their own room and their own bathroom, there's still incredibly hard places to live with security that often treats people terribly and you're not allowed to have guests. And it's really, really challenging. Um, and it's because these systems are designed um, to a certain, I mean, they're designed by people who aren't experiencing the system. So I think like when we wanna talk about opportunity and like how do we really do equitable de development differently, we need to approach it in a completely different way where we have a much more open mind around like really co-designing solutions and really being willing to like be in dialogue about what doesn't work in our system and what and and I will say government is not good at this like as a, I've worked in government in the public sector for many years now and I'll be the first to say this is not our strong suit um, it's a really tough muscle to build that muscle of humility and listening because what happens is you're quite most folks who work in the public sector are quite overwhelmed by everything you're trying to handle and manage. Um, it's a lot. Um, and so people are overwhelmed. And when community members come and they're like, I have this idea for community land trusts, government folks are like, yeah, well, that's not practical. Thank you. But we're busy. Um, and so like a lot of the ideas that come from community members get dismissed, either because of a sort of inherent like, well, you know, we know better or just from simple like bureaucracy is quite exhausting and and it can be hard to try something new. Um, and a lot of times when people present stuff, it can feel like, well, that's so pie in the sky, but we couldn't actually do that. Um, and the amazing thing is like when you actually do start to see though that like partnership between vision around like how do we create um, resources that really do make us a more stable, secure, strong community. Um, and when we're when we're able to partner that with public resources. And and there's I love nonprofits. I worked for nonprofits for many years too and they do amazing work. Um, and I'm so grateful for the work that nonprofits are doing and they're often piloting innovation. But when you really see scale is public resources because obviously what you can do um, at 
a level, at a government level, is much bigger than what you can do. Um, and so now we do see more investment in community land trusts, and we see um, ULA passing, which is demanding that the city invest in social housing. And you start to see these more innovative models that are more responsive to what communities need. Um, but like I said, it's, it's hard for people to learn that skill of how do you really um, work in partnership. And the last thing I'll say is just, like, I make mistakes every single day. Like, I don't want to be sitting up here being like, I'm an expert in how you partner with community. Like, like part of really being in partnership is a humility where you can say, wow, I really messed that up. I'm so sorry. Um, can I try again? Um, I didn't do that right. I didn't use the right language or I wasn't considerate of this or whatever. Um, and so there is a lot of um, risk taking, also not easy for government, humility, not easy for government, um, and having to be willing to like, okay, well, that didn't go well, let's try again. Um, and you just have to sort of keep trying day after day um, to figure out like when the magic actually happens. So, okay, as you could probably tell, I am a very angry person and also a very pessimistic person. <laughs> but my job today is to help inspire and give hope. <laughs> um, a few things. One is, do you know California is the fourth richest economy in the world? After the US, China, and I think Japan or Germany. It's always like one or two of those. So we have a shit ton of money here, right, to take advantage of. We are also a city and a county and a state that has acknowledged that the federal government is not, their tax system is not as progressive as it needs to be. And so we've been self-taxing, right? So we have a potential tax for more homeless services next year or this year. Um, you know, we have ULA, we have a number of different initiatives because we know like the federal government isn't gonna come in and save us. So we need to save ourselves, right? ULA is like a mansion tax. So if you have a mansion over $5 million, you're getting taxed. If you don't, you're fine. Um, and I think part of that is really kind of recognizing we need to create local resources, right? Local resources that allow for flexibility, that allow for innovation. Because the reality is that a lot of these issues that we're talking about, they're totally solvable. It's just there's not the political will and there's not the creativity to think strategically. Right. So, you know, when I talk about the low income seniors in Chinatown, a lot of them live in SROs. Right. So a lot of the, you know, older buildings that you'll walk down Broadway and Hill and you'll see it's like two story brick above the shops. That's single room occupancies. Right. So it's think of it as like dorms for poor people, if you don't know. Right. Where it's like 30 tenants will share like one set of bathroom facilities and one kitchen. Right. And it's housing that's super cheap. Like, you know how cheap it is? We paid rent for an entire building in October last year. It was $6,000 in total for 20, 24 units of housing. Um, I have been trying to lobby HACLA and the city and the county to use their project home key funds. It, this is like a, a, a program to acquire buildings and rehab them for you know um, unhoused folks. Um, but you can use the money for homelessness prevention. Right. So those 10, if we can get the county or the city to buy using Project Home Key money, that building, the tenants can stay because they're at high risk of becoming homeless. Right. You know how much it's going to cost to subsidize that building? $300 a month per unit. That's how much it's going to cost to prevent that tenant from falling into homelessness. 
It's so freaking cheap. But we don't do it because we have a system that focuses on the people who are already unhoused, which I'm not saying we shouldn't, right? But we also, in order to solve this homelessness crisis, we have to stem the flow into homelessness and also get people out of it, right? And so it's about like these strategic opportunities and really thinking about leveraging. I think the other thing that we can walk away feeling a little bit um, optimistic about is um, there's a major culture shift that's happening in the city's department of uh, planning. Um, so how many of you guys know what a community benefits agreement is? Okay, so half of you. Okay, community benefits agreement is oftentimes, you know, a developer comes in, let's say Staples Center, when, you know, when Staples Center was being built, a lot of local communities organized and said, you're going to create all kinds of harms in this neighborhood, so you have to give back to the community in the form of, you know, local and targeted hire, you have to give, like, funding for affordable housing, all these different benefits so that the local communities that are going to be burdened by construction, by traffic, all those things can come back and get benefits. So the city has, has adopted um, a community plan for this area, for Chinatown and downtown and Skid Row, where all development is going to contribute to the supply of affordable housing in the region, right? And other community benefits, including like protecting and uh, supporting like community serving small businesses because we're seeing a lot of gentrification of small businesses as well right we're losing we lost four grocery stores because landlords refused to renew the leases you know these weren't people who couldn't afford their rent they could they just got kicked out we actually our organization got kicked out and replaced by an architecture firm <laughs> an asian american one so at least it's still you know culturally relevant on but, brand <laughs> um, yeah on brand exactly yeah. right but so you know like I think that there's a, a recognition that we need to do multiple things m simultaneously and we need to get creative I think it's just a lot You know, so much of like the ideals of what the public is and what public benefit is it's it's it all sounds so um, like who wouldn't be behind it, right? Like, um, you know, this idea of how do we truly make sure that public land is used for for public benefit um, becomes so slippery because I think we have such a narrow definition of who is allowed to be in public. You know, we've seen um, how public spaces are so contested, right? Like we're unhoused folks, right? There are certain activities that are limited. So many of our public spaces are policed. How, public housing is in, you know, you t depending on who you're talking to, it's it's prison, it's carceral. It's, it is also heavily surveilled, um, heavily policed, regulated. And so it can go so many different ways, but what are some efforts that we can start looking towards that redefine public so that it is from a place of agency, from a place of, of you know, residents generating power, self-determination over, over their own spaces, whether it is, you know, a, a, a open public space or just even the homes that they're in. 
Well, I can certainly just say um, there's been a big effort after over the last year and a half in Skid Row to create a Skid Row action plan. And you've been part of planning efforts in Skid Row. And there's been many planning efforts in Skid Row, but we have another one right now, the Skid Row action plan, um, that was really um, focused on um, improving the health and wellness of the community. And one of the things that community members spent a lot of time talking about was security. Um, and like, how do we keep spaces safe? Um, like we wanna keep spaces, um, particularly in Skid Row, there's a big focus on how do we make spaces really hospitable and welcoming for people who are active in their addictions, who are involved in sex work, you know, all of the things that happen in Skid Row. So we wanna keep them welcoming and hospitable, but they also, we want them to be safe. We don't want people to feel like there's a threat of violence when they go into these spaces. So how do you balance that? Um, and there was a real focus on like, well, how do we have community members who are serving as community ambassadors um, to really welcome people into the space, but also help set the tone around what are the norms in this space and how does this space, you know, function as a safe space and really, you know, people who are expert in de-escalization skills, um, which is really different than like, you know, you go to the downtown Department of Mental Health and it's like you got to go through a metal detector and you walk up to a window with bulletproof glass and there's security guards with guns and like, you know, how do you create safety um, in a very different way? And that's been a big focus on like, yes, it's important for public spaces to be safe, um, but how do we do that in a way that's really welcoming and inclusive um, and not excluding the very, the most important people who need to access public spaces? I mean, the reality is for a middle-class person with a backyard, like, yeah, it's nice for you to come to the State Historic Park, but you don't need it in the same way um, as someone who doesn't have access to green space. And so how do we keep, keep our public spaces really accessible to the people who really need them? I would just echo a lot of that because a lot of times I think about, you know, when we think about who is the public and who is the community, oftentimes people have multiple definitions, often rooted in who they are and who their community is, right? Um, I think about like a lot of public engagement and public processes, how they tend to focus on property owners, homeowners, and not really thinking about like, well, Aren't workers also who spend like 40, 60 hours a week in this neighborhood, you know, stakeholders? Um, what about renters who live in unofficial housing, unauthorized housing, right? Like couch serving with friends. Like how do you define all of that and how do you prioritize their voices? Because oftentimes, you know, especially in a neighborhood like this where you have a lot of people who are limited English proficient, right, who are immigrants who may or may not have authorization to be in this country, their ability to engage in design charrettes and policy making is very different than middle class, you know, homeowner who teaches at UCLA, right? <laughs> Um, and it's important to kind of understand that because what gets brought into a community, like what type of park gets prioritized? You know, and I was thinking about the State Historic Park and, you know, the Chinatown Yards Alliance that created this. It was Chinatown residents who came together with, you know, like environmentalists to block the warehouses that were supposed to be built here. But the thing is that the community wanted a middle school and they wanted an active use park, right? With a rec center, with like, ba you know, basketball courts and that kind of stuff. And they didn't get that, right? Because again, you know, the presumption is, well, a passive use park would still be great. And, you know, there's like a long history that's kind of fraught about that, right? But I think about how like park design, when it centers 
upper middle class families tends to over police for seniors, for street vendors, for the unhoused and for youth, right? If you don't design spaces that are inclusive of these people, then you just get public spaces that are ex essentially exclusive, right? And then I think about too, like, you know, I've been, there's a you know a couple of residents who've reached out to me recently about the State Historic Park, and they've had a number of complaints specifically around the concerts that happen here. And they're really loud, I will say. Like our office, like when they would do sound checks, I would have to send my staff home on a Friday afternoon because our building would shake, right? So it wasn't even just loud, it was just like vibrationally, right? And the thing is that the argument is that money helps pay for programs and operations here, Great, but it also pays for programs and operations in the other state parks in the region, right? So we feel the disproportionate impacts of these concerts and the disruptions, but a lot of our, a lot of the revenue that's generated, how much of it is staying here versus paying for other things? And I'm not against paying for other, you know, like spreading the wealth, but can we spread the burden a little too? <laughs> One thing I want to make sure, because we've touched on it a little bit, but haven't really gone into depth, is there is a really interesting sort of public debate right now around William Mead. Um, so William Mead is a public housing development two blocks um, east, um, the oldest public housing in Los Angeles. Um, and the housing authority is looking at um, what should they do with this property? Um, it served as public housing probably since the 40s, would be my guess, is when William Meade was built. Um, it's in disrepair because the federal government won't provide the funds to maintain our public housing, so it's in disrepair and what should be done. Um, and I think there's a lot of part of what's been happening because there's so much federal disinvestment um, in public housing is that a lot of housing authorities have had to turn to private developers um, to redevelop the sites and they then turn them into more traditional affordable housing. Um, and I think there's an extraordinary opportunity. William Mead is fascinating because it's literally being surrounded by luxury housing development. So there's all these new buildings getting built around William Mead with high-end lofts. Um, and it's this incredible, valuable resource of public land in a community that's gentrifying extraordinarily fast. Um, and so, like, I think there's a real opportunity for all of us to be advocating with the housing authority, like, yes, this site needs to be rebuilt so there can be quality housing on this site, but it should be rebuilt with 10 times as much public housing not privatized. like, And I think the housing authority is looking at, well, how do we maintain the same number of public housing units, but then have a bunch of private, traditional, affordable units? And I just think there's this real, and also with ULA, that's really created now a funding source for social housing. Like, maybe this should be our first site of social housing, where it's all really affordable and accessible um, to people with the lowest incomes, rather than trying to do this traditional redevelopment process that's happened at a lot of our other public housing, which has brought in private nonprofit developers. And, you know, like, I've worked for a nonprofit developer. I'm not against affordable housing development but not on public land. Like on public land, let's keep it truly public. And not, like I said, it's not that there's anything wrong. I Like I totally support affordable housing, 
but it's just such a rare resource to have public land where we can ensure that people are only having to pay 30% of their income and that it's harder to evict them. When you live in public housing, it's much harder to be evicted than it is when you live in affordable housing. So I just think there's such an opportunity for all of us to push the city, like, let's have this be our vision where we can do something really amazing um, with this site. And I think just to kind of echo what Molly's saying, I don't think that in our brains we're thinking public housing, nonprofit affordable housing, bad, good, or anything like that. I think it's just fundamentally public housing provides housing that's affordable for the poorest residents in our city, right? Traditional nonprofit affordable housing doesn't because that's not how the financing of that work that world works, right? And I support traditional nonprofit affordable housing for teachers, for firefighters, those folks, right? That's a great population that also needs affordable housing, right? But the low-income seniors that we work with, the families that are working in garment and sweatshops and under the table and doing street vending who can't qualify for traditional affordable housing, we need somewhere for them to go. Right. And so that's why we're like, I'm such a huge cheerleader in like, yeah, let's expand and build more units on William Mead and build more on a, um, public housing in general. Right. But let's make sure it's doing what it started to do, which was provide housing for the people who can afford other options. So I think we all know um, we need a spectrum of interventions, right? Everything from um, unimproved, like unbuilt, um, you know, land as it should be, all the different types of housing in between. Um, and so what are ways that we, we actually can reimagine? So like, let's take an opportunity to just like, I, I know it's so easy to get mired in all the barriers, constraints that we have to work within. But if there were opportunities to truly reimagine and really centering the, the experience, but also well-being of, of, of our communities, of our residents, of our seniors, of our young people. How, how could public housing, you know, how should it be in terms of just thinking forward and in, in just sharing what your vision of, of possibility is? Well, and I do just want to push, like, um, to really move towards community co-design rather than community engagement. I think we're all pretty like frustrated with what community engagement has become where it's like you can come to a public meeting and file a note card with your comments and 500 comments will be compiled and the you know people will write a response of like oh that's not feasible can't do that like um I just feel like we really have to think about like how do we do this, like I said, in a very different way, in a real partnership, in a way where it's like, you know, like how do we, you know, bring people into spaces where we're providing childcare and food and really making it a space that people want to be in together um, and really are in true partnership where it's not just like, okay, I like so many with these projects, like they bring in these consultants and it's just sort of about like checking a box where it's like, well, we held 10 meetings where we gave 20 PowerPoints and we received 500 comments and we're doing exactly what we planned to do before all of this. So I have two stories of crappy community <laughs> engagement. One was William Mead, right? So the design consultants had like four boards and asked people for feedback. And one of the questions they actually asked was, do you like pitched roofs or flat roofs? 
And all I could think about is, I think there are bigger issues that you could be talking about, <laughs> right? And then, this is my favorite. So this was, I think, in 2015, 2016, the county had was doing their park equity assessment and trying to figure out what are park priorities. And they did... Um, a meeting in Chinatown, and they did they they didn't hire very good translators, and so then all of a sudden you had a bunch of low income seniors who don't drive advocating for parking, like we want more parking at this park, and it was just literally like they don't drive they they live across the street why would they want more parking it was because of shitty translation basically you know like. These things happen all the time, right? Like good in, doing good community engagement isn't actually that hard. Like our, our organization's tiny, like we're a staff of five. And if we can do community engagement in five languages, because in this neighborhood it's like Chinese, Vietnamese, Khmer, which is Cambodian, um, Spanish and English, right? And then Chinese is more complicated because there's like four dialects. If we can figure that out and we're a tiny organization with a bunch of youth, I think that like, County agencies, city agencies, the housing authority can do better. And they also just, I think sometimes art can actually be a really amazing tool for doing that. I mean, one of my favorite art interventions was when the county was planning to build more jails um, and groups came together and they did an art installation where they filled Temple Street with the bunk beds that they put in jails. Um, and it stopped all the traffic on Temple Street. Um, and then they all, all of the activists came in and they shut down the Board of Supervisors meetings. And the county amazingly stopped the program of building more jails, um, which was really, it was a, an astounding pivot because there had been this push like, oh, our jails, again, are, they're falling apart. We need to build bigger, newer, better jails. And the thing with jail is, you know, if you build it, they will come. Like, they will fill the jail if you build more jails and more jail beds. Um, so it was, a, it was a really powerful moment of, like, creating this civic discourse that really changed policy. And so I'm always interested in the ways that, um, again, like, it's not, like, sometimes written language isn't the best way to change policy. And it's experiences you have to give people through, like, an art intervention, um, you know, that can really um, change the course of the direction policy is going. I uh, think too often we don't give enough space and resources for communities to solve their own problems. Because in the end, uh, you know, people who have directly experienced any type of issue know within what, what we need in order to um, actually to thrive. I think it's how do you create the container, but also through the listening, how does that actually influence, right? I think that I've been in so many meetings where um, people are actually not willing to implement some of the suggestions or the, it's too expensive, it's not possible, we don't have enough time. And so I think really the opportunity for um, more self-directed, um, not only design, but also I think the management of spaces is really, really important. I think something we don't talk enough about is how controlled people are in institutional housing. Um, you know, Molly talked a little bit about it in Skid Row. It's like, when are visiting hours? Like, who can, like, as someone, you know, uh, I'm a homeowner. I, I have, I get subsidy, right? Like, every, on my taxes, like, my insurance is written off, but no one is telling me how many people can live in my house, the amount of square footage I need per person. Whereas, you know, you look at someone with Section 8 and that type of subsidy, it is so much 
more uh, monitored and regulated in ways that is absolutely inequitable, right? And so it's how do we continue to create, you know, when we say opportunity, it's like let's really mean opportunity. Like let's actually implement suggestions. How do we resource community? Like Sika is such a great example of like your young people are the ones that said we need to change pol planning policy and did, right? Like how, how does that continue um, to, to influence the way that we're thinking about public policy. Um, so well, there's been- oh, Can I just yeah. say one quick thing and then we're gonna open yeah. it up because yeah. I know we're talking a lot, but I just wanna say, um, Teresa, if you wanna talk a little bit about our Skid Row, I think part of the reason our Skid Row was so powerful, and again, some of the ways those of us in, who are here with different skills can like be in this conversation, I think, I think visually when people tell you what their vision is and then you visually create it um, and reflect back to them, it's so powerful. So I think like people are still talking about our Skid Row in Skid Row today because you created a visual representation of what the community was asking for. And that dialogue was so powerful that a decade, it's been a decade or more than a decade. Yeah, so Molly's talking about... Um, uh, a participatory planning uh, project that while I was at Skid Row Housing Trust, um, we launched, I'm looking at John and Henriette because LA Poverty Department was such a key important partner along with you know, LA CAN, Downtown Women's Center. Um, but really thinking about Skid Row as, as a neighborhood that we actually want to preserve because there is so much political organizing, um, cultural infrastructure, and just the amount of assets that you don't see. I think Sissy was talking about that when you think about Chinatown, you just think about, you know, sort of the, the negative aspects of it. But um, we did this back in like 2012, 2013, and we knew on the horizon that they were gonna be updating the downtown community plan. So it was like, oh my gosh, this is a, a planning opportunity, but how do we flip it? And so how do we center the experience of, of, of Skid Row folks, of people who have been unhoused, and then design around that? And so a lot of times Skid Row has been a um, sort of an afterthought or just sort of everything has been planned around it. So it's like, what do we do if we think about public safety through the lens of someone who is unhoused? Um, what do we think about housing, connectivity, and all of those things? And so we went through, so all these partners came to the table and we're like, we, Skid Row has never had a planning, a comprehensive planning anything. And so we're like, all right, let's look at uh, you know, what Sika did with the Arroyo Seco plan, what Boyle Heights did with the People's Plan, and like, let's just really rethink our Skid Row. And so I think for like almost two years, we had all these different community workshops, conversations, we had a resident resident sort of advisory committee making sure everything we're doing is is was on target. But aside from being like, do you like red or blue? Um, our community were actually the ones at the table t like guiding us and really giving the direction of these are the way the sidewalks need to look. These are the types of housing units that we need. And really for me, I was like, okay, let me order the food and then just like take notes, you know? And it was like the professional technical assistance was really about, okay, how do we continue to get grants and resources, but then create, we called it planning, but it really became an advocacy and organizing tool. Like we can't, we, instead of a 50 page, book we created a poster and I love it people would like carry around this poster and like take it to the elected officials offices and the beautiful thing was you know this started off as a two-year dream of what the neighborhood could be turned into a formal coalition that created that became the downtown CCU Central City United which was Chinatown Little Tokyo Skid Row coming together 
who and you know everyone had their own community plans and it was like this ultimate Voltron of like <laughs> it was of like deep communities of color with like histories of resistance being like this is what we want our downtown to be and then last year parts of it were adopted of course there it could have been better when we want more but this idea of you know the 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 people's organizing, influencing policy, I think is the only direction that we can go in order to really, this top-down planning of folks that have actually, you know, a lot of times people who are setting housing policy may not have actually even lived in subsidized housing. Like that's deeply, deeply problematic, you know? And so I think, again, this idea of, you know, beyond co-design, it's like co-authorship, right? The folks that have been most, impacted by the systems of harm are the only ones that can like bring us out right like and so how do we continue to create spaces for that but resource it like this is technical assistance this is the technical assistance that we need at every single table that is reimagining our futures our cities the way our land is is being used how do we return land back also you know to indigenous stewards that actually understand what true sustainability re really is. And so I think we're just starting the conversation. We also really, there's so many folks here that like we've worked with, that we love, that are community partners that have so much, you know, insight and wisdom as well. And so we do want to open up the, the queue and Adrienne Marie Brown and Sonia Renee Taylor once did uh, a series of classes and they changed Q&A to Q&D into question and dis discussion, which I love because, you know, they were like, we don't have the answers, even though they're some of, you know, our most brilliant teachers at the moment. But really, how do we uh, engage in conversation altogether? And so I guess a prompt I have back to the folks that we're in circle with is sort of, you know, what is your own experience with public housing and or with public lands? Where do you think we should be going? Who should we be listening to? What are ways that we can reimagine some of this housing crisis that we're sitting in? And so I'm not sure how we're gonna be doing the mics. Oh, there's Chris with the mics. Hi, thank you all. Um, so I have a practical question follow-up about William Mead. Um, two part, one is it is um, built by federal funds. And so expanding that, are you thinking that comes from state or city money or federal money? And I think it's hard right now, right, to get federal money for housing, almost impossible. So that's first part. Second part is um, how can organizations that work around these neighborhoods, like Clock Shop, like Sika, be involved in supporting the push for more public housing there? And one thing that I see is that as the neighborhood shifts and new people come in, they don't often understand the history of what's immediately around them and what it took to even put this park here. So that's, that's a lot. Well, I mean, I will say just to start, I think that piece around how we really educate people about the community they're a part of when you have new people, particularly a lot of residents coming in with higher incomes around like, what is this community? What is the history here? What is your responsibility as a member coming into this community? I mean, Sika's done an amazing job really trying to educate like I know a lot of the work you've done around trying to educate businesses around their responsibility to the historic businesses that have been in this community. Um, so 
the feds will not give us a dollar. Um, they would love to see William Meade torn down and not, they'd love to see not even affordable housing there. Um, that's sort of the direction things are going at the federal level. So yes, we're not going to get a dollar of federal money, um, which is, that is the trend. I mean, we increasingly, housing was a federal responsibility for many, many decades. Um, the feds have been disinvesting in housing also for many decades, and it's increasingly falling on the state, the county, and the city to be the funders of this work. But the state, the county, and the city do have resources. And like I said, ULA um, does have a whole carve out for social housing. And I think thinking about the connection between social housing and public housing is really important um, and how those dollars might help us actually expand, at least preserve, but certainly expand our um, amount of public housing would be fantastic. So we should all be um, writing to the Hackla Commission um, encouraging them to take a, a much deeper approach to this and not just a traditional redevelopment. And I will add, remind you guys, California is the fourth largest economy in the world. <laughs> there's a lot of money. Yes, there's a state budget deficit this year, but two years ago, we had a $90 billion surplus. These things are cyclical, right? So we yeah. have to be pushing our electeds to be more strategic about the cycles of our economy and how we spend the money. Like, are we going to be in boom times giving tax credits to wealthy people? Right. Or like, I think about like, what was it two or three years ago when the city had their emergency rental assistance program? It was, oh my God, so many hoops to try and get some of our residents to apply, right? Because there were language barriers, there were documentation barriers, there were tech barriers. Like my poor staff had to like write a clipboard, you know, these applications and then run back to our office and then like type it all up and then go back and be like, oh, I forgot to collect these documents, right? Um, and yet the, the city <laughs> provided rental assistance for a family of three somewhere. We think that they're like unemployed actor or something like that, right? Because they were paying $7,500 a month in rent, right? And it was just like, oh my God, that could have paid for an, an entire building in Chinatown, right? Like, how are we being strategic? And I'm not talking, you know, like, our, our public benefits system is very punitive to poor people, right? Where, like, you know, you have to make below a certain amount. Um, and oftentimes that amount is just, like, ridiculously low. But then when it comes to tax credits for homeowners and all the benefits that subsidies we provide for middle income and really wealthy people, that's a whole other conversation. Um, it's ridiculous, right? It's about being more strategic about the resources we have. And we have a lot because we're California. And I should say there will be a ballot measure on the November ballot um, that will be a half cent sales tax that would replace Measure H because Measure H was a quarter cent sales tax passed with a 10 year sunset that would sunset in the next few years. And that some of that money will continue to support homeless services, but it'll also um, be the funding mechanism for La Casa. And I am never going to remember. It's L.A. County, County Housing Solutions Agency. Yes, so there's a new um, housing finance agency that's been created by state law, but doesn't have any money, so we need to tax ourselves so that we can create the funding source so that they can do things like build public housing. Thank you for such a great panel. I probably have 100 questions, but I'm going to combine it to two. In terms of writing to Hackler, if you could talk us through the practical steps of doing that, 
Is it something we should be doing regularly? Is it a single issue that we should focus our attention on? I would love just a little more explanation of the tactics of that. And then my other question is a demographic one. So much funding is contingent on the demographics of the communities we serve, housing burden, socioeconomic status, educational attainment, etc. Are we starting to see the effects of gentrification in terms of how eligible, let's say, Chinatown nonprofits are to access funding because with wealthier folks moving in, those demographics are shifting? Or is that a sort of balloon effect that we're going to see in a decade or so once census figures and other surveys start to reflect the reality right now? And I worry about that, but I wonder if you do and, and what your thinking is about that, those shifting demographics and when they're going to change, who can get money and who can't. So I can answer both questions really quickly, and I would love your in So in terms of how to contact Hacklet, you can email them, you can call them, um, or you can just meet them on the streets. I know that Molly had invited a couple of the Hacklet commissioners here today. I don't know if they made it. Um, I will share a story with about Ed Reyes, our former council member for this district. I remember the first time he ran into Sika, it was when Lucy, one of our students, she was like 15, and then she's Asian, so she looks even younger, right? Um, came up to him at like some random community barbecue and she starts lobbying him about the Cornfields Royals eco-specific plan and it's just like gentrification and he's just like, who is this person and why, why is she talking? Why is this 12-year-old lobbying me about, you know, planning inclusionary zoning? Why does she know the words inclusionary zoning? And you know what I mean? It's like you can it, it, there's you don't have to do there's no formal way to make your opinion heard, right? You can tag people on social media, right? Like post something. You know, like you can tag the commissioners about this event when you go home, right? And again, you know, you don't want to call the random secretary, right? You have to know who are the right people to contact. But essentially, I would start with the commissioners. And so if you go on the Hackle website and just sort of like, hey, we heard about William Mead redevelopment. We heard that there, there's a proposal on the table to bring in a lot of market rate housing. We should be investing in more public housing. Like, it doesn't have to be complicated. doesn't have to be fancy. doesn't have to be like all that stuff. You can obviously contact me and I can like coach you through it because I do that. If I can do it with 16 year olds and 12 year olds, I, can, I think I can do it with you. Um, and then in terms of like, you know, you're talking about the demographics and all this other stuff. I think two things that immediately come to my mind is, yeah, the tax base here is increasing. But what you're also seeing is the more demand for public services for the people who are now unhoused because they got evicted and replaced by a higher income tenant. And you're also assuming that the higher income tenants are paying a higher tax rate. Because remember, rich people are really good at avoiding taxes. And then on top of it, a lot of these luxury housing units are actually Airbnbs, right? So that's a whole other conversation about corporate taxation that, you know, I could go in, but I won't. Um, you know, so it's not always about like there's more revenue, so there's going to be more income for groups like ours. In fact, what's going to happen is there's more revenue, and it's going to be again filtered out of the community, and then we're going to have to do more to make sure that the you know to prevent people from becoming un unhoused or to provide various random services that we never had to before because there's more need and more demand. The other thing too is um, anti-Asian racism is real. And so oftentimes what ends up happening when you have like 
an increase in tax bases. If you want to talk about equity, when people talk about equity, they always exclude low-income Asian uh, Americans. Like, just straight up. They're like, no, we need to focus on South LA. We need to focus on Boyle Heights. And I'm like, yes, but we also need to focus on Chinatown because if you look at the census data, median income in this neighborhood is half of what it is in Boyle Heights. But people don't acknowledge that. And so they're always like, let's put more resources to help alleviate poverty in Boyle Heights. And I'm saying yes, but it shouldn't come at the expense of Chinatown <laughs> when we're demonstrably poor. I think it's, you know, you can also, getting in touch with the housing authority is one way. You can also just, like, go to your own neighborhood council land use committee. And for, I would just troll my, my land use committee, and any time they talked about housing, I was like, where are the low-income units? You know, I was like, I don't want any development in my community unless it has a percentage of affordable housing. Like, people got really tired of me, but I just kept saying it. You know what I mean? Like, so there are various ways that you can like advocate and you actually probably have more power when you're working in your own community okay and you don't have to just talk to hackle you can also talk yeah. to the mayor's office you know the local council yeah. representative like sorry it's really hard. <laughs> sorry y'all probably can see me i mean that's louder <laughs> than i expected um i had a question i work for a nonprofit during a lot of the stuff you all have talked about, like working with communities, and we've been working with public housing, specifically on the west side for the last like three years. One thing that I feel like we haven't quite cracked is, um, I think there's like this new attention on like capacity building and like training residents on like how to like, you know, extract their demands from like local officials. But I feel like there's this unsaid thing of the local officials, um, have a lot more allegiance to the developers that have to come in and like provide a tax base. And I don't know if you all have had any experience with like training residents to like call out these developers. I think I've, I've been looking at the um, the gondola, um, <laughs> um, just like campaign. I think it's a really good like tactic and precedent for like how do we fight back against developers and not just beg elected officials for like crumbs at the margin. Cause it's yeah, long drawn out process. Okay, all right. Um, so with developers, you can negotiate a community benefits agreement, a CBA, right? But that requires leverage, power, and a lot of organizing and public pressure, right? CBAs are also site by site. So if there's like a thousand different parcels here and a thousand different developments, then you have to negotiate them individually. And then on top of that, you as your organization has to enforce it individually, right? Whereas when we talk about land use planning and community plans, that sets the rules for what can and can't be built in a community and under what circumstances for an entire neighborhood. So all 1,000, so the community plan for downtown basically sets the rules for every project from the 10 freeway all the way up to the LA River, right? And so basically part of the reason why we do a lot of community planning work, and it, I mean, I, I love working with Skid Row in Little Tokyo. It was kind of like one, you know, highlights of my career. Um, though you didn't, um, but so, Basically, a community plan is an opportunity to negotiate a CBA at scale. So instead of negotiating with the individual developers, now you're lobbying the city to set the standards in which every parcel has to 
provide community benefits in some form or fashion, right? And every neighborhood's gonna have different priorities. So some may want more green space and other neighborhoods may want more community serving small businesses, whatever it is. But that's the point of land use planning is, you know, you, you say like, well, we don't wanna build schools next to freeways because we wanna protect children, right? That is one mechanism for controlling land. Another is, if you want to build market rate housing here, then you have to do X, Y, and Z, right? Hire locally, uh, set aside a certain number of units for people making 15K a year, you know, so on and so forth, right? Um, and so, and for me, like, I don't consider talking to elected officials as begging, right? Like, tr trust me, <laughs> like elected officials are like, oh God, it's sissy again. Um, <laughs> Because I'm entitled to, as a stakeholder in this community, as a voter, I mean, you, we work with a lot of people who are ineligible to vote, so I hate that term, but you know what I mean, right? Like, these are quote unquote public servants, right? Um, if you're begging them, then you're automatically coming at the table with the assumption that you don't have the entitlement to advocate for your community that you're asking for a handout as opposed to, no, my community deserves healthy schools and parks and you know health centers and, all the, and, and affordable housing, right? So that's kind of how I approach it. And I also just say, I think community organizing is extraordinarily powerful. Um, and yes, there are times when there are developers that are so powerful and so close to the elected officials that were not able to succeed. But I've just had so many powerful experiences, whether it was the county making the pivot to not build any more jails, the county passing um, rent stabilization for the unincorporated areas, um, the creation of an affordable housing trust fund at the county, like these things would never have happened without community organizing. And so there are times we don't succeed. I mean, I'm thinking about Ed and your fight around inclusionary zoning, which maybe took 15 years, 20 years, a very, very, very long time of community organizing. But like, I don't know, my, my experience in the public sector is I am, I, I have so many things that I can look back on and be like, this never would have happened without community organizing and it's changed the face of the city because um, we had that organizing. We have time for one last question. So who has a really good closing question? Uh-oh. <laughs> Hi, uh, Ed Reyes. Um, first, I want to thank Clockshop and yourselves for this amazing discussion and conversation. Um, as a member of the audience, and as a Joel Citizen now, I'm watching all this amazing work and the structural issues that you've described, it's overwhelming. I mean, it's hard to, f it's easy to feel defeated uh, when you see 46,000 people living in the streets surviving. And when you, you hear the hardships that you go through. But I'm inspired by this sense of spirit and the can-do mindset that I'm, that's also very prevalent in your discourse. My question to you is that when we look at the social policy and the capital and who is prioritized because of the significance of money, do you see within your realm enough energy in your respective constituency to change some of these basic policies? Because we're talking about a structural shift looking from, at housing from a commodity versus a right. And when you have people with money who want to invest, but they need to make the return, 
on whose back are they making that return? And so my question to you is, for example, and I'll just drill down to this point. I see that a lot of planners, architects, attorneys make good money in this process, but the organizers don't. The people that are actually putting in the hours in the street, knocking on doors, working late, preparing the forms, getting all that is, that is needed to have a good engagement in a, in a community meeting. Is it possible to have the kind of lobbying where we require the elected officials to say, it's mandated to have X amount of, of organizers of a certain level of, of compensation in the process as part of the CBA? Uh, so that way, the folks who are actually doing the work in the trenches are, can actually live doing it. Because uh, a lot of the organizers are carrying one or two jobs, and they're doing this you know, out of the, the spirit of their heart and, and, and their sense of community. But it's a very small slice of the process, but I think it's a very significant one. Because you're right, who is going to attend these meetings these days? The question is, has gentrification changed? the makeup of the community where now the interpretation of space is going to be different. So there's a lot here, but I just want to drill down to like one basic question, and I'm hoping that reflects a, a, a bigger sense of optimism that we can still move in a direction for, at least for the hope of our young kids and our grandkids. I do just want to say, I mean, going back to how powerful community organizing is, like what we're up against is global capital forces. Like this is, you know, people are like, oh, you know, like is LA doing something wrong that there's so much homelessness? This is global. Like what is happening with capital and land and the asset economy? Like this is a global phenomenon that little LA, I mean, yeah, we're a big city, but like we're fighting this huge global thing coming at us. Um, and I'm just so proud that as a city, like there is so much that we're doing to try and fight this and there's so much more we need to do like the it's a you know thank god for the mlk quote like the arc of the moral universe is long but it bends towards justice like it is long like this fight is going to be long but for the first time in the last presidential campaign we did hear biden and kamala harris talk about a right to housing we'd never ever in a presidential campaign not that they achieved it because there's way too much opposition but it was our first time hearing a candidate and one of the things that's happening is we are starting to see community organizers get elected and you know karen bass is a community organizer marquise harris dawson is a community organizer ugo is a community organizer unices is a community organizer and so like this investment in community organizing is not just helping us have more community organizers but it's helping us actually have those community organizers move into places of leadership and thank god for the organizations you know groups like liberty hill that are putting money into trying to make sure that jobs are sustainable and people can do this for a long time but you're right. I mean, so many people who are trying to do social justice work can barely pay their rent themselves. Um, and it's really hard and it takes a lot. It's not like a one year grant is going to make a big difference. You know, it's decades of investing in groups doing this work and being able to do it sustainably. I think for me, a couple of things. There's the practical advice I can give you. Um, and then separately, just kind of for me conceptually, I, a lot of times when people talk about infrastructure, they talk, talk about bridges and freeways and, and transit stations. And I think of 
soft infrastructure, right? So hard infrastructure is like concrete, and then soft infrastructure is that gossip network, right, between neighbors and residents. And why that's important is because those soft infrastructure is what allowed us to survive through the pandemic. And it wasn't just about, um, like, social connections for the sake of your mental health, but it was like, remember when everybody was chasing after vaccines, right? Like, that, so that soft infrastructure was, like, they're, they're opening up a vaccine clinic for tomorrow, sign up, you know, like that kind of stuff, right? Or in, you know, in our neighborhood, it was a lot of like, they're doing a food distribution tomorrow at, you know, lot 45, like where people were looking for, looking out for each other, where they could get services and programs and tips, right? So like a, an example of soft infrastructure was, you know, us, Little Tokyo Service Center and Skid Row all became uh, pandemic relief organizations overnight, like not because we wanted to, but because our public health system sucks in this country and doesn't prioritize vulnerable communities. And so I just remember there'd be times where like Steve from LA Can would call me up and be like, hey, I have a tip on hand sanitizer, sissy. You should apply, blah, 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 right? And then I would call him and be like, I just got a donation of masks. I asked for three times as much as I needed so that I could give you know, a set to you guys in Skid Row and a set to you guys in Little Tokyo. You know what I mean? Like we were, that's soft infrastructure, right? that oftentimes doesn't get counted, right? And so community organizing is soft infrastructure, right? Because it's, it's a way in which we can get people to kind of provide community feedback on you know, a policy or a redevelopment or whatever. But those are examples of that infrastructure that oftentimes is unseen, right? Um, but could be, if well leveraged, actually work better for the city and the county, right? Like whenever they would do these design charrettes or these policy meetings, I was like, you know what would be less work for you and actually more impactful is if you just went on this corner at this time, there will be a bunch of seniors buying their groceries over at Broadway and Ord between like 9 a.m. to 11 a.m. and you just send somebody with like a clipboard and ask questions and that kind of stuff, as opposed to, doing a meeting where you have to do all this outreach to get people to that meeting. You just go to where people meet every day, right? And you'll get better information because, you know, you're not self-selecting like the people who can afford childcare on a Thursday night, that kind of stuff. Um, and then on practical advice for Ed specifically is you should probably join the um, Department of City Planning's community benefits, um, uh, what do you call it? So basically, the downtown community plan has a community benefits program um, and a racial equity program that I helped write, yay. Um, and so basically, it'll generate some level of revenue, some of which will go towards supporting community-serving small businesses, making open spaces accessible, affordable housing, but they're gonna be doing like a, what do you, uh, what do you call it, um, advisory body on how to prioritize what that money is gonna be used for, right? Which is great. You should go on it, Ed. Lifelong, right? We may not see true resolution in this lifetime, right? We're inheriting generations of real intentional oppression. And so I agree organizing the, the, the soft social infrastructure of, of mutual aid, you know, but I think all of us have a role to play in it, right? So it's like, for me, the question is, how do we end the occupation of land, right? From, from Palestine to Skid Row to Chinatown. Um, 
you know, to the occupied lands of, of the Tongva, uh, Tongva people. It's like, what can we do? It takes, you know, the form of white settler colonialism to gentrification to the uh, new construction of more public housing. And so it's, I think, you also have your own resources to find a place. Like we need every single person here to do this work because it is lifelong. Whether it's paying a land tax, you know, to your local indigenous land stewards, whether it is calling your elected officials every single day, you know, whether it is making a donation to SICA, there's so many ways that you have resources, even if, it, if they're not financial, it is, you know, showing up to your land use committee meeting and being that person being like, I do not want any development on in my neighborhood unless it has 30% affordable units. Like, but some of that is also on you finding, you know, finding a way for you to have impact as well. And so I think it's fantastic that we can sit in this beautiful park with sunshine on our face, um, but there's so much work to be done and we need each and every one of us for the rest of our lives and the generations to come. And so, but how exciting that could be, right? Like it's, it's so hopeful, the, the amount of just um, true uh, emergence of power is beautiful and like, just even being together, like I'm so heart filled. And so yes, this work is so hard, but it's also like the most gratifying, you know, most deeply connective thing we can possibly do. So I'm like so thankful you were all here. So thankful for you to host the conversation. Um, don't stop, don't stop. Okay. Make sure you right. got some right. Oh. <laughs> Just really quickly, thank you again. Thank you so much to Teresa, Sissy, and Molly. That was wonderful and heartwarming, and I feel so full. Um, just a reminder, Clock Shop is a arts and culture organization that produces free public programming like this, so $5 would mean a lot. Um, but we also have two more public programs related to this project. Next month, uh, the artist will be speaking about his process and the materials he used in Spanish, and it'll be simultaneously interpreted in English, so any Spanish-English speakers are welcome. It'll be a really special time. He's really funny and charismatic, and it'll be great. And there'll be empanadas, so yeah. And uh, also, the closing program will be a reading and listening by Moonrise, one of our famous quarterly programs here. Um, shout out to Arla, who has funded us through 2025. Um, Oh, and then Sissy was really helpful and uh, started this community pact back in like 2020 about uh, businesses that are opening during gentrification, like opening in Chinatown and how they can resist gentrification. We edited that community pact to be more neighbor forward. So please pick up a copy over at our welcome table. Thank you so much. <laughs>